Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Luke chapter 9? Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through verse 62 is where we'll be in in God's Word together this morning. And uh, just a real quick welcome back to Pastor Daniel. Uh, He's been on sabbatical for the last four months, and he's been back with us for the last couple weeks, and we have missed him, and we're glad that he's uh, back in action uh, and very thankful for him as our lead pastor, uh, giving us an example of what it means to prioritize emotionally healthy spirituality and stepping away for four months and trusting that Timothy and I would not uh, foment a rebellion. (laughs) Um, But God is good. If this is your first time with us, uh, we have been in a series uh, entitled uh, That You May Know. Uh, It's a sermon series from the Gospel of Luke uh, where we have been considering the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, the impact that has on us as believers. And today is our our last sermon in this series, and uh, we'll just take a few moments to to look at a conversation Jesus had with three individuals who seem to want to follow Jesus, but uh, they misunderstand uh, what wholehearted discipleship means. Jesus does not want half-hearted disciples. And so as he challenges these three individuals, I want to invite us to consider uh, how might the Lord be challenging us to be more wholehearted, to be more committed to him. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62. Hear now the word of the Lord. As they were going along the road... Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you allow us to know you, that you created us to worship you. Would you receive our worship as we open your word? Thank you for speaking to us. And Lord, I do ask that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Back in 2009, there was a school that was facing a unique problem. The problem was the school was 
sinking into the ground. I don't mean this metaphorically, I don't mean it poetically. Uh, ben Old Elementary School in Ben Old, Illinois was literally sinking into the ground. When you would look at this building on the outside, it looked beautiful. I mean, the city spent $7.5 million constructing this school. It was state-of-the-art building, only seven years old. It was a beautiful building. But when you would go inside to the school, you would see that the school was falling apart. Students would be on their way to class, and they would see a crack come down from the walls. They would be in the cafeteria, and there would be dips and cracks in the floors. Nobody knew what was going on until the administration looked at the foundation. Turns out there was an old abandoned coal mine some miles away from this school. And after some 50 years of this coal mine being abandoned, it finally collapsed. And the collapse caused the ground to shift and to break. The elementary school was in the vicinity of this collapse, and so it was impacted. So because there was something wrong with the foundation, this school was not able to stand. Because there was something unsettled beneath the surface, this state-of-the-art building was unfit for its purpose. I said earlier that Jesus wants wholehearted disciples. What we often miss about discipleship is that uh, a wholehearted discipleship means that the Lord wants all of us, that he calls us to put him first above all else and to follow him. Whereas half-hearted or even no-hearted discipleship is a discipleship that's only at, at face value, where wholehearted discipleship gets beneath the surface at the foundation. Half-hearted discipleship is a shallow response to a shallow understanding of the cost of discipleship. Luke chapter 9 is a chapter on discipleship. From beginning to the end of it, you see Jesus interacting with and teaching his disciples about what it means to wholeheartedly live for the kingdom of God. If you're a note-taker, I would encourage you to write down nine, Luke chapter 9, verses 23. Luke 9, 23 is a focal point of this chapter and really all of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you sense the, the costliness of this kind of discipleship? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes this, the cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Do you sense the costliness of this kind of discipleship? 
If you're looking for a concise definition of discipleship, I like Dr. Mark Lederbach's definition. He says, discipleship is disciplining your worship. I like that. Discipleship is disciplining your worship. And when you follow Christ and become a disciple, you are uh, aligning your, your worship away from, from self, away from stuff or grades or money or achievement, and you are aligning it to Christ as the all-sufficient, all-satisfying reigning king over our lives. This is the backdrop of our story this morning. Three individuals are talking to Jesus and talking to him about following him. But there's something going on beneath the surface, something going on that's keeping them from wholehearted discipleship. We begin to see it as we see our, our first individual here in verse 57 and 58. Jesus and the 12 are walking along the road, and he meets them on the road and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that's the kind of commitment you would think Jesus would be excited about. But there's something going on beneath the surface. Jesus responds, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Seems like a strange response. What is Jesus addressing with this disciple? Well, the parallel story in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8 may give us some insights here. If you, if you look at 8.19 in Matthew, you'll, you'll see that this individual is a scribe, and he calls Jesus teacher. Two important details. You see, a scribe was, was high, highly regarded in this community. They, they were the religious leaders, the religious elite. They, they dedicated their lives to, to scholarship and study and guiding the Jewish community in their religious life. To be a scribe, you were among the most powerful of positions in the community. What was also true about scribes is that to become a scribe, you had to submit your life to a teacher. As a student, you would go everywhere with your teacher as you would learn all of his lessons, but not just that, you would learn the model of his life. So what a big statement it is for this scribe to say, I'll follow you. A scribe that's already gone through the process of learning and submitting, he says to Jesus, you, you, you obviously know more than my last teacher, so I'm willing to do it again. What was also true of scribes is that they were used to a certain lifestyle. They were used to comfort and prestige. We see it in places like Matthew 23 or Luke 20. Uh, they, they were used to the best seats at the table. They were used to long, flowing robes. They were, they were used to being greeted in the marketplace, being known and being seen. What's keeping this disciple from wholehearted discipleship is the world's comforts. Because here's Jesus, and he's living in some meager circumstances. Jesus doesn't sit at any heads of tables. He doesn't even own a table. He doesn't own a home. He doesn't own a bed. What a contrary depiction we see of Jesus. 
The Lord of the universe does not have a place to lay his head. I love to beat on Ubile's thoughts here. He says, the creator of the universe was homeless in his own creation. That's humility and sacrifice. He divested himself of all glories and privileges of heaven to enter creation homeless. And following the Lord means following him into the life that he lives. Jesus is saying to this scribe, I am entitled to more than you could ever dream, but foxes and birds got better accommodations than I got. He's not saying that all disciples have to be homeless in order to follow him, but he is saying that if you're counting on the world's comforts to be at home in this world, you will not embrace wholehearted discipleship. So this scribe is saying he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. But but what if Jesus goes somewhere that's uncomfortable for this disciple? What if he goes somewhere that's hard? What if following Jesus leads him away from what he thinks he's entitled to? Will he still follow Jesus? What do you feel like you need to feel comfortable following Jesus? And this is where where I struggled in prayer in writing this sermon. Because in all that's going on in the world right now, it's all that's going on in our country and around the globe. I mean, it just seems like bad news on top of bad news. And if I'm honest, I find myself asking God, this is where you're going? Like, why are you going this way, Lord? You are the creator of the universe. You are all-powerful and all-good. Why are you going this way? Has anybody ever asked a question like that? That's all right. You don't have to be honest. You don't have to be honest. It's okay. But for me, there are moments in my life when I have said, Lord, I didn't sign up for this. I I didn't know that when I was following you, this is where you were going. This is so hard. Then I remember people like Job. Job in the Bible knew about hard times more than anyone. He lost everything. His health, his wealth, his family. Devastation upon devastation, sorrow upon sorrow, and yet he still was able to say in the midst of all that, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth. He's saying, no matter what, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. Jesus is looking for followers willing to relinquish their idea of what they think life should be, even and especially when things are hard. Because when Jesus is our dwelling place, we can lose everything and still be at home. We see the second disciple, verse 59 and 60. And and this time, Jesus initiates with him. He says, follow me. 
And he responds back with a seemingly simple request. Let me first go and bury my father. And how does Jesus respond in verse 60? Lead the dead to bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. Seems a little rude. Just going to be honest. It just seems like a really harsh response. Like, he, like Jesus, he's just wanted to do right by his dad. He wants to bury him. Isn't that just a simple request? Especially in this culture where, where, where family and the collectivist mentality, that was the norm. These words from Jesus seem highly offensive. But again, Jesus is seeing something beneath the surface. This isn't just a a simple request. Because it was unlikely that this man's father was actually dead. Because if he was, he wouldn't be on the side of the road talking to Jesus. He'd be at home with his family. That's what he's basically saying is, let me just go home, and whenever my father passes, then I'll bury him. But then stop there. Because according to Jewish law, Numbers 19, if you touch the dead body, you were unclean for a week. So now let me, let me go home, wait for my father to pass whenever that is. You bury him, then wait a week. And then we can talk about me following you. But it doesn't stop there. According to Jewish custom, you would, you would wait for a year. And then after a year, you would put the remains of your loved one in an ossuary or a bone box. And now we got to add another year to this timeline before this disciple is ready to follow Jesus. What's going on with this disciple, what's keeping him from wholehearted discipleship is the world's affairs. He wants to secure his father. Maybe he wants to secure his inheritance that he would get from his father before following Jesus. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bear their own dead. You proclaim the kingdom of God. Of course, Jesus values family. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your parents. But how we live should be the result of a rich, abiding obedience to the kingdom of God. As Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So for this disciple... Jesus entrusts him with something that the spiritually dead cannot do, proclaim his kingdom. What that means is that, that he's not living life merely for the sake of bearing his father, but he's living his life for a kingdom that has conquered death. It means that he's living for a kingdom that gives him meaning beyond this world. And so it is for us that when we look around and see the issues of life, we we can proclaim that the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run in and are safe. It means that when we see turmoil on every side, we get to proclaim the kingdom and say that the Lord is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Oh, that's a good place for an amen right there. That means when we see political unrest and and terrorism, both domestic and international, that we get to proclaim that the government shall be upon his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
That means that when we feel the weight of pain and loss and sickness and death, we can lift our eyes to the splendor and majesty of God's kingdom and say that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oh, hallelujah. Praise his name. It reminds me of the great reformer Martin Luther. In the early 1500s, the the bubonic plague was ravaging lives across the land. Luther was losing loved ones all around him. Friends and family lost. And on top of that, all the other burdens that he was going through. And in the face of all of that, he was able to put the paper to the pen and proclaim the kingdom of God when he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. That's the kingdom that we serve. That's the kingdom we proclaim. That when life tries to shake us up, we can proclaim that we are part of an unshakable kingdom. And that changes how we see the world's affairs. We see the last disciple. His last disciple is in verse 61 and 62, and he's ready to follow Jesus. And he says, but first... Let me say farewell to those in my home. The NIV says he wants to say goodbye to his family. Again, this seems like a reasonable request. But once again, Jesus is looking beneath the surface. Jesus tells him, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what's going on with this disciple? The New Testament was originally written in Greek and uh, The Greek word here that's expressing, saying farewell, could also be translated to separate from or to renounce. It's the same word used in Luke 14, 33, when Jesus says, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So this isn't just some simple goodbye. What's keeping this disciple from wholehearted discipleship is the world's approval. It's not that he was not allowed to say goodbye to his family. It's that he was not able to say goodbye to his family. He still couldn't let go of their approval. J.C. Ryle says this, those who look back want to go back. And if we are looking back to anything in this world, we can't be disciples. The passage doesn't say why, He wants to go back. Maybe he was looking for reassurance from them that Jesus was truly enough. Maybe he was dealing with some FOMO, some fear of missing out or what what he would lose if, if he followed Jesus. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus says that if you're approaching following me like this, you are not fit for the kingdom. The NIV says unfit for service to the kingdom. So it's not his salvation at stake here. It's his usefulness in service. The Greek word for fit is to be translated suitable or usable. Jesus is saying, you are not useful for service to the kingdom if you're looking back. And he uses the illustration of the plow. That uh, the land in this time was often very rocky. It was hard to farm. 
The plow was a powerful instrument pulled by powerful cattle. And in order for a farmer to cut straight lines, he had to put his hands on both the handles and hold it tightly and, and look forward and hold it close so he can do it straight. And if he's looking back, making sure he's cutting a straight line, then the plow would veer off course. Jesus is saying, you will veer off course if you're looking back, waiting for the world's approval of you. Which that actually, it highlights the beauty of the gospel. Because where the world's expectations are, are, are saying work for approval, the expectation of the kingdom of God says work from approval. It's as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that, that we are his workmanship, his, his handiwork, his masterpiece, depending on your translation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We live as disciples in this world knowing there's no greater message of belonging and approval that we work from more than the message of God's kingdom. And so we hold on to that for dear life in this rocky world. So in Christ, we're no longer rising and falling based on the opinions of friends or family. We no longer rise and fall based on our job or our school. We no longer rise or fall based on ever-shifting standards of beauty. For in Christ, we have the riches of his glory, the, the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge hidden in him. And we cling to that, lest we veer off course. These three disciples. These three disciples were, were struggling. Even if they didn't know how much they were struggling, they were struggling. So when we struggle and we're embracing the world's comforts and the world's affairs and the world's approval, we, we struggle to embrace wholehearted discipleship. That's what we see in this passage. And I, and I wonder, can you relate to these disciples? Scholars debate whether or not these disciples were, were actually uh, disciples or they were just would-be disciples and Jesus was exposing them and sending them away. Because we don't know what happens with them. We don't know how they respond. Did they end up following Jesus? Or uh, did, they, did they leave crying because Jesus just crushed their feelings? We don't know. And I think that's the point that Luke is trying to make here. He leaves it open-ended to invite us into the story. He's inviting us to consider whether we are embracing wholehearted discipleship or are we just half-hearted or no-hearted. Because the reality is, even if we embrace wholehearted discipleship, we will still struggle. I mean, look at the 12 disciples. They were always up and down. If you just turn the page to chapter 10, you, you see Jesus sending out the 72 disciples. And they miss the point of the kingdom again. They come back and they're all excited because they're casting out demons. Pretty cool, but it's not the point. And Jesus tells them in verse 20, don't rejoice in all this stuff. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Simple, but not easy. But this is wholehearted discipleship. 
This is why, as a church, we're, we're trying to step into community formation, men's and women's Bible study, emotionally healthy spirituality, city groups. We're doing this as a church because we want to acknowledge that we all need help disciplining our worship. We all need help pursuing discipleship that gets beneath the surface and strengthens the foundation of our lives. But first things first, have you come to Jesus? Have you even come to Jesus? Have you responded to his call for discipleship? Have you come to the end of yourself in order to wholeheartedly follow this king who gave his life so that you could have true life? May it be so that we would surrender to this king so we could experience wholehearted discipleship. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we do confess that our expressions to follow you are broken, that we truly struggle to see you, look at you, focus on you in our life's pursuits. And yet, Lord, you endure with us. You still call us to yourself. You still invite us. You still bid us to come and die so we would experience life. Lord, would you help us to see that? Would you help us to respond to that? In Jesus' name, amen.